Zechariah chapter 12. We begin the final ode or final word that is given as far as what is written down. Verse 12 continues on through 13 and 14. As we told you, chapters 1 through 8 occurred around 520 to 518 B.C. These final six chapters were about 40 or 50 years later. This would put this prophecy about 500 years before Jesus' crucifixion. And there are a number of future prophetic things here, and most of the rest of them are about 2,000 plus years away from occurring from the time that the prophecy was given. Let's read here in verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. When they lead siege against Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all the peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Now against here, in the Amplified, it's translated concerning. So it's uh, one of those kind of a meaning. They're either coming against it or they have a concern about Israel. He starts off here looking at describing the Lord who stretches out the heavens. That's the, the real, that's, I mean, that's the big picture right there. Comes down to the earth, which is a much smaller picture. And then even smaller than that, forms the spirit of man within him. Shows the bigness and the smallness that God can, can deal with here. He talks about Jerusalem quite a bit in this chapter. And Jerusalem has a history of obsession. In the Old Testament, I uh, found some places that did a count of these words. I didn't go through and count them myself. But I'm told that Jerusalem is mentioned 811 times in the Bible. The next closest reference of a city, you can probably guess what it is. And that would be Babylon. Jericho, or Babylon is at 286, so it's a huge drop from Jerusalem. Those are the two big cities in the Bible. One represents evil, one represents the Spirit of God. Sodom is at 48. Bethlehem is at 39 times in the King James Version. I did not check all these out to figure out why the disparity, but... In the New King James Version, the city is referred to 49 times. That's 10 times more. I can do a side-by-side on that, but it took a little more time than I decided to give to it. It goes up in the NIV to 51 times. So, Bethlehem might actually be the fourth most mentioned city. Sodom would then be moved down to number four. And number six is Nazareth at 29. Just in case you were curious as to how many times these cities are are mentioned. But Jerusalem is overwhelmingly the most mentioned city in the Bible. And here it talks about an obsession that the nations will have. He says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all the peoples. There's two things that these seem to to talk about. First off, it talks about the... should have read a little bit further. Uh, in verse 3, And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all the peoples. 
All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. So all nations of the earth are gathered against it or concerning it. Verse 2, it talks about the cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. Now, the surrounding people are the nations that surround the nation of, of uh, Israel. These would be the Arab nations. And if you ever wanted a great explanation as to why it is that the Arab nations seem to get so crazy over this city and over this nation, quite a few years ago, it was prophesied in the Bible that they would be, that Jerusalem would be a cup of drunkenness to them. Now, drunkenness, I wrote down some things about what drunkenness does. First off, drunkenness is an addiction. People who get drunk keep going back to get drunk again. There's an addiction. Drunkenness is, I put it this way, an intelligence release. Basically, you become stupid. People that are drunk do stupid things. You sit back and say, why in the world would anybody do that? Well, they're drunk. Third thing is, it is an inhibitions release. You don't have as many inhibitions when you're drunk. And the fourth I wrote down was impaired abilities. You can't do things as well. And that may help us to understand some of the things that nations have done against Israel, some of the attacks they have done, some of the uh, obsession that they've had with this land. I've seen people put the graphs up and they look at the land mass of all the Arab nations and the land mass of Israel. And it is so small compared to how much land mass that the Arab nations have. You wonder why in the world do they care about this small plot of land that's not even the size of New Jersey when they have all this other land around them. But they, there's a drunkenness, as the Bible puts it here, way back before Jesus even came on this earth, it was predicted. Now, in that day, occurs 16 times in these three chapters. This is not talking about a specific 24-hour day. We know in other places it's, we have it called the day of the Lord. In that day, in the day that these things are going on. 16 times we see that in three verses. So, first off, they're going to be drunk with this. With Jerusalem, it's going to make them drunk. And secondly, it's going to be a heavy stone. Now, what in the world does it mean that it is a heavy stone? Well, let's read it again. Verse 3, And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All people are going to have a concern of this nation. There are some nations we don't even know the names of. We don't even know where they are. But Israel, most people know where it is. And there's been a lot of concern on it. There's hardly a president in my lifetime that has not had some concern over the nation of Israel and the different things that would go on. It has become even an election issue. For, Like I said, I don't know about the ones that were before me, but I know all the ones that were running when I was uh, taking note of these things. They all made promises. They all made declarations about Israel to support them, to do different things. There were a number of presidents, and I don't know how far back it goes. I am pretty sure it goes back to Jimmy Carter, and every president after that made the promise to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. That was constantly made a promise. I know the both Bushes made that promise. I don't know if it goes back as far as Carter, but 
Uh, I'm pretty sure both Bushes made that promise. Uh, Obama made that promise. Uh, Trump was the one who actually carried it out. He was the first one who actually did what the other one said they were going to do. Now, the reason that they, the other presidents didn't, I think they all thought it was a good idea. Maybe they just thought it was a politically good idea. But once you did it, there was a lot of pressure with people to do so. Uh, it didn't matter what side of the aisle you were on, left, right, Democrat, Republican, Independent. It could it makes no difference on that at all. This was a concern for everybody. Should we make Jerusalem the capital? Now, as far as God was concerned, Jerusalem is the capital, and somebody needed to come along and, and just recognize that. But uh, even in Israel, there's a lot of the politicians, and certainly the politicians that countries would send, like to be in Tel Aviv more than they like to be in Jerusalem. So if you make Jerusalem capital, they've got to move their headquarters from Tel Aviv over to Jerusalem, and Tel Aviv is more of a party city. They liked Tel Aviv better. So there's, there's pressure from those folks. There's pressure from the Arab nations. All these presidents, they have to try and keep peace with the Arab nations as well. So the Arab nations say, you do that and we're mad at you. So it's a lot of pressure. You have to have a place where you either don't care that the other nations will be mad, call their bluff, whatever it might be. Uh, but Jerusalem was going to be a problem for all nations. And it was a problem from 1948, even before when all these nations would meet, what are we going to do with Israel? They just went through all this tough time in World War II. Should we uh, give them their, their land? No one wanted the land at that point. No one was contesting it. It was barren. They gave it to Israel. Then everybody wanted it because when Israel got hold of it, it began to produce again. And though Israel does not have a whole lot of resources such as gold, silver, diamonds, oil. I think they have a little bit of oil. But the big thing is they produce food. And for nations uh, that are out there, they, they need food. So, it has been a problem. But back here in Zechariah, it is prophesied to be a problem. This is going to be a stone. This is going to be a weight. Someone's going to be bringing up Israel. Oh, Israel, yeah, what do we got to do with that? No matter what we do, if we say, yes, let's do it this way. If we say, no, let's do it this way. If we condemn them for attacking. If we don't condemn them for attacking. If we say they're defending themselves. If we give them these weapons. If we don't give them these weapons. All these kind of issues have come up over all these years. And there's always different ways of looking at it. I can't tell you that any one president is just completely wrong in what it is they did. Uh, I just don't know all the things that they're, they're looking at in making that decision. So I try not to make the judgment and say, all right, well, you maybe should have given them these weapons to help defend themselves. Well, I don't know exactly what they were looking at. They probably had a lot more information than I have. Uh, and most times they're not trying to be against Israel. They're trying to keep peace in the area. I do realize that. But Israel has been our best ally, probably over the world, but certainly the best ally in the Mideast. They have uh, always stood with us, and uh, that has been a, a good thing for us to have. But back here in this day, in Zechariah's day, he has a word, and it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces. That's another way of saying, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. But it's still the same thing. Anyone who's going to try and take Israel and as the Arab nations have said, heave it into the ocean. Uh, it's not going to go well for them. I mean, remember back when the, it was a big day when Egypt actually made peace with Israel. Uh, they, I forget the name of the guy who 
who uh, was over Egypt at the time, but he was assassinated, they believe, because of that decision. I can't think. Can you think who it was? Anwar Sadat? Yeah, one of the, whoever it was, they made the decision, they made peace with Israel, and they, uh, they were assassinated for, the, for that. So there's a lot of hatred over there. They go nuts over this, this city, and they go nuts over this particular country, and they uh, have their way of... What's that? 81 he was assassinated? Well, the surrounding nations are the nations... Of course, Egypt would be one of them, Jordan, Syria... Uh, you can just look at the map and see all the nations that surround them. Those are the actual surrounding nations. And a lot of those are involved in attacks against Israel, throwing missiles over. Israel is uh, always on defense for these things. Now, as we said, this word was prophesied. Uh, some of this occurs, has occurred, and some of this is still going to occur as we look at the things that are in these chapters. So there are going to be great numbers a number of nations that come up against Israel. But in this particular chapter, God is talking about how He will defend them. Verse 4, In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness, and I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. A lot of these prophecies that talk about end times are talking about horses. And people have said, well, we don't use horses anymore. So they've looked towards, maybe there's going to be an energy crisis. Maybe there's going to be an energy shortage and people will use short horses again. They've gone into a thing like this. Well, it's really hard for God to give Zechariah or others a word about tanks, about airplanes, uh, about ships that uh, fire uh, missiles the way ours do and, and all the different kinds of warfare that we have when they have no vocabulary to describe it. So their description of things, uh, an army moving, would be horses. So God gives it to them in a language that they would understand. But in this time, we wouldn't be using horses so much. We would be using tanks and we would be using aircraft and uh, missiles and all the things that go along to support those. So I don't get hung up in the, the language of the horses. But whatever it is that they're using to be mobile and to come against them, they're going to get messed up. He says, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider... With madness, I will open my eyes on the house of Judah, and I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. So they're going to be confused, they're going to be blind, and they're going to be mad. That's not a good way to go into battle. In that day, the Lord will strike the enemy. Now, it doesn't say that he'll strike it before that day, but in that day, he will strike them. Now, this may be a prophecy that sees a partial fulfillment in the Ezekiel battle, but a full fulfillment in the Armageddon battle. Verse 5, And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength, and the Lord of hosts their God. The governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength. Now, the ESV translates verse 5 this way, Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord, of hosts, their God. So, the ones who rule over Israel, the governors, they'll see that God has made the people strong. The NET reads this way. Then the leaders of Judah will say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are a means of strength to us through their God and Lord who rules over all. 
So they see that God is moving through the peoples, that they were going to be a strength for them. And I don't know of any other way to interpret this as I ponder this, except that the governors are not going to try and obtain peace through diplomacy. They will use the people that are there and they will engage in battle, it would seem. Uh, if it was going to be a d- diplomatic peace, then the governors would have just have done this themselves. They would have felt empowered, but it's the people that are empowered here. Verse 6, In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a firepan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. So, the governors of Judah, knowing that the people is who God is delivering them through. That the governors of Judah will then use that as a resource and will take the peoples and go into battle. As they go into battle, the the governors are leading them. They're not trying diplomacy. The people are not doing anything on their own. As they go into battle, it says here that the governors of Judah are like a fire pan in the woodpile. Now, the first time I read this, I instantly thought of the uh, cartoon remake of Rapunzel. How many have ever seen Tangled? You never seen Tangled, the uh, uh, the, the heroine, the, the uh, Rapunzel in there, uh, uses a uh, frying pan as a weapon, and then later on the hero of the movie uses the same thing and remarks about how fantastic of a weapon this is. But I wanted to look this, this up a little bit more on this fire pan. In the NET, it reads the verse this way, On that day I will make the leaders of Judah like an igniter among sticks and a burning torch among sheaves. And they will burn up all the surrounding nations right and left. Then the people of Jerusalem will settle once more in their place, the city of Jerusalem. Now in 1 Samuel 2.14, this word is used in a number of places Fire that is translated fire pan here. Most times though it's just translated pan or fire. And then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle, or cauldron, or pot. Now there we have a word for pan, kettle, cauldron, or pot. But the word here, fire pan, or the word pan here, can also be translated fire. In Obadiah 1.18, The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and a house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them, and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The house of Esau... Is basically made made up in the area of Jordan. So that's one of the surrounding nations, and it says that they're going to be like a a fire in the in Obadiah here. They're going to be a fire. They're going to be a flame, and Esau is going to be stubble. So if you put a fire in a place of a flame, well, it's going to it's going to cause the stubble to go up. Nahum 1.10 says, For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. So some other areas of Scripture talk about a similar instance with this. And that Nahum is talking about the burden, verse 1, the burden against Nineveh. This was the, what the word spoke against Nineveh, that he would take vengeance on the Lord's adversaries, in particular Nineveh and the things they had done to Israel. Now, since the text here reads once more, let's read it again. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in a woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They won't be stopped. They're going to come right on through and there's nothing that they have to, to hold them back. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right 
hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. Now, very likely, you can see fulfillment of, the, at least a partial fulfillment, in the Six Days War and the war, uh, I believe it was, uh, there was one other battle that took place there too, in which they just made mincemeat of the enemies. The enemy could not stand. They came in to wipe them out, and in six days, Israel took so much territory back. They took Jerusalem back in six days. And that really is a, a very descriptive way of putting that they were like fire going through stubble. And though they, all these nations rose up against them, they could not hold them back. And the only thing that stopped Israel from complete annihilation of them was the U.S. getting involved in making a peace treaty and getting the ceasefire and getting them to stop. But uh, the Arabs, the Arab nations had absolutely no chance at what was coming after them there. Uh, verse 7. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of of Judah. Now I looked at a whole lot of translations on this and they were all pretty much translating this the same way. So I went into uh, more of a dive into this particular way of translating. This is a phrase and it is a preferable reading for this phrase which is supported by the Greek translation, the Latin translation and the Syriac translation is as in the beginning or as in the former days. So the Lord will save the tents of Judah first. That's really kind of hard to understand. How is he saving the basically the villages, the people outside of the fortified cities first? But the only way you can understand that is if they came in, they would probably hit them first before they came to the fortified city. But a better reading of this, and since the Septuagint, which was a translation from a much longer time, Latin and Syriac versions, they were closer to uh, maybe the, the original. Since they all translated this way, I would send, I would say this is probably the better way to do it. The Lord will save the tents of Judah as in the former days. As in the days when Israel roamed the wilderness. As in the days when Israel came into the promised land. As in the days when, when Israel was defended by God. Those early days. He says, The Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. I understand this to mean that basically a walled fortress will not be needed or dependent upon as God will protect them like He did before. God never needed a walled city to protect them in the wilderness. God didn't need a walled city to protect them when He brought them out of Egypt. He didn't need a walled city when He took them into the promised land and had them go after the walled cities. So as the time was before, he's going to be again. When they didn't have the ability to depend on walled cities, God was their protection and he will be again. Verse 8, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. Now picture this. Do you remember David in the book of Samuel how he was described in battle? He was described in a way that Saul became jealous. That he would go out and slay thousands. And the people feared him. The, the enemies feared him. And David was always like this. When he had 600 men, he would go in and he would uh, win. It didn't seem like he lost a man. And David was extremely uh, uh, great in those fights. And of course, he took on Goliath. He took on the, the big guy when he's a young lad. 
if the weakest person in your army is fighting like David, wow. <laughs> I mean, what kind of an army is this? It's an army empowered by God the same way that David was empowered by God. God is saying this, I'm going to empower them all. And you're going to have an army of people coming out that the weakest of them is going to be like David. And he goes on to say, most, the one who is feeble among them in the, that day shall be like David, and the house of David, those descendants of David, shall be like God. <laughs> All I know is you don't want to face these guys in battle. Like the angel of the Lord before them. So when you think of the Old Testament, you think of the angel of the Lord going out before battle, and you know one night the angel of the Lord slew 185,000 people. If the descendants of David are going to be like that, and the rest of the people are going to be like David was. Whew. Wow. No, no wonder the Six Days War went the way that it was. And the wars that are coming up. The Ezekiel War coming up. They are massively outnumbered. And the slaughter that they do is phenomenal. It is great. It disrupts power among many nations. There, I'm, I'm convinced that the disruption of power is so great that the ten-nation confederacy loses three kings, loses three leaders, for which the Antichrist steps in that, that uh, power gap right away and takes leadership of those nations. That's how severe the beating will be that is coming. That's not going to stop anybody. They're still going to come because, of course, they don't believe the Word of God. And I don't know how many Israelites even know that the Word of God has prophesied this. Verse 9, It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. The New Living Translation puts it this way, for on that day I will begin to destroy. Not just I will seek to destroy, but I will begin to destroy. God is after them. He's coming to tear them apart for all the things they have done. He has watched them. We saw from the book of Zechariah, his forces were out there. He's watching. But now it's time we're going to unleash on these nations. There are nations that are becoming bold in their efforts against Israel. But the day is coming. And you hear some of the talk that goes on with uh, the nations out there. Iran and some of the plans they have for Israel. They want with the, the worst way to develop nuclear technology. And the first thing they want to target is Israel. And they want to blow them off the map. And Israel knows this. And they will do everything that they can to uh, defend themselves. But God is going to be defending them as well. In that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That's why it's important that we as a nation stay on the, the right side on this. Uh, even if we're not here for this day, it's still better that we, we stay on the right side with this. Now, God will give these nations time to repent. And that's what He's doing now. He's giving them time to repent. It don't seem like it, they're going to take it doesn't seem very likely that they're going to repent. But God does this. He's done this in the past. He did this with Nineveh. He'd sent people there to warn them. Jonah, of course, went and they repented. But then, of course, they went back in their, their ways. And then Nahum came along and he told them, all right, well, destruction's coming. And destruction did come. But he's done this all through this when people have come against Israel. He has come back against them. Verse 10. And I were poor on the house of David... And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. 
Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. This first part here, when it says he will pour on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, this is those of Israel, the spirit of grace and supplication. It could just mean the spirit which gives grace and leads us into prayer. could just mean something along those lines. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Now that's a prophecy that is uh, repeated in the New Testament. And apparently there's some debate about whether that's what Matthew was referring to when he said this, but we not only see this here in Zechariah, but Isaiah in chapter 53 also uses the same terminology that he would be pierced. And the idea of a Messiah who would, who would suffer is not just here in Zechariah and it's not just in Isaiah. It is something that is prophesied. It is something that the people did expect, but they did not expect it to end Messiah's life and then there to be a gap before he came back and was ruling militarily. That part surprised them. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. This is talking about a severe mourning, severe grief that is going on. When it uses this term here, let me go back on this. Um, verse, the first part of 10. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. This term, look on me, it's used in the Old Testament to point to trust in, a longing for, and a reverence of. That by using this term, it seems to indicate that they are going to have a trust in, a longing for, and or a reverence of the one who is pierced or Messiah. So, the grief that comes on, it would seem like it has with it this, it's not just, I feel bad for my sin, I feel bad because we crucified Messiah. It seems to have some real repentance. That this comes along with genuine repentance, that they are repenting of their way of rejecting Messiah. Again, I've told you before, I don't think the nation as a whole does, but there are going to be a number of people from Israel who will repent of having rejected Messiah and will look on him as into trust in him, as a longing for and a reverence of their Messiah. I gave you some references there for pierced as well. John 19.37 and Revelation 1.7 in case you wanted to look them up. Now the wording here, this is a real interesting. I want you to see this part because you can read over this and not quite catch it. Let's read the whole verse again. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me. Who is given the prophecy? Zechariah is speaking the words of God. This is Jehovah. This is God the Father speaking. These are the words of Jehovah that is speaking. They will look on me whom they pierced. Who did they pierce? Pierce Jesus. He's the Son, right? Now look at this wording. Yes, they will mourn for Him. Huh. How do we just go from me to Him? As one mourns for his only Son and grieve for Him as one grieves for his firstborn. Well, this goes in line with the New Testament teaching we see in John and in other places. Jesus constantly referred to this. But in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Well, this is what Zechariah is saying, basically. The Father and the Son are one. He refers to Him, you pierced me. Why? Because Father and the Son are one. 
But then he says, him. I mean, that word, he can just jump right past you. But he's, he, he is speaking this word as God gave it to him. I don't think Zechariah has any understanding of what he's saying here. Why he's saying it this way. But this is what God gave him, and this is what he speaks. This is what he wrote down. And so we see the same concept that Jesus was teaching. It's right there in Zechariah. Verse 11. In that day, there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. Anybody know what he's talking about there? Hadan Rimnon could be a town or a location in the plain of Megiddo. If Megiddo does not ring a bell to you, it seems to have reference to the death of Josiah in the battle against Egypt in Second Chronicles chapter 35, 20 through 25. You can read that and look that up if you want to. Josiah was the great reformer. He brought Israel out of so much sin, brought them into some prosperity again and some strength. And you remember that Egypt was on a mission from God. Josiah didn't like them coming through his territory. He sent a message to him. He said, I am on a mission from God. I am not here to mess with you. I don't want to mess with you. Leave me alone. And Josiah would not. So he went into battle and he was mortally wounded. He asked to be taken away. And he died uh, later on. And all Israel mourned over the loss. Well, actually Judah mourned over the loss of Josiah. They were very sad that this had gone on. He was a great reformer, but he died this way. He did. He should not have been there. He should not have gone after that. If he would have asked God, God probably would have said, no, leave that alone. That's not your battle. But he went in and he did that. But all the land mourned. All the land was, was saddened over this. And he's probably referring to it in that. That's the kind of mourning that's going to go on. And Josiah was the last good king that they had. They had reason to mourn. Verse 12, And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of Shammai by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. The only reason I can come up with and all this stuff that I was doing, looking over, come up, why are we doing all this with, about the wives and the husbands and everybody separated? Is because in this day there was an off, there was often separation between the women and the men. In fact, a big house like David, you had a house for the women, you had a house for the men's servant. They, they didn't have, uh, living quarters in between. They, uh, basically had segregated dorms, you would, you would call it that way. In the smaller families, of course, they didn't have the same thing. But uh, in, in the Paul's day, he describes a situation where the men are on one side and the women are on another side in church. Th- that's just something that they did. When they came in, there was a lot of separation. Now, we're not too far from that ourselves because if you go to any party in any gathering, what you will see is the women gather over here and the men gather over here. And, you know, every few, you have a few that intermingle in there, but pretty much... The women, I mean, you might have a couple of packs of, of women over here and a couple of packs of, of the men over here, but I mean, isn't that the way that it goes? The, the women hang out with themselves and the men hang out with themselves. That's not a new thing. It was going on back in here too. So it seems to be what's going on, what he's referring to. But there will be such great mourning. 
And that's why it seems to be associated with repentance, not just remorse, not just, I feel bad for what we've done. Oh, I wish, uh, I wish we didn't have to bear the, the brunt of what we had done. But no, there's, there's real repentance with this. And great mourning came in as well. So as we look over this chapter, what in the world is all this? Why does God put this kind of a chapter in here for us? Now, some of it is because there's some future prophecies that are going on and we're going to be able to watch this. So when we see some of the turmoil going on in the land of Israel, when you see the problem that they have been for nations, you understand that this is, has gone on beforehand. Most of the problem that people have with the nation of Israel is simply because they don't want to do what God says. They don't want to treat Israel the way that God says to treat Israel. And then they try and find a reason to not. Uh, some Christians will say, well, we, don't, we shouldn't treat Israel that way because uh, they don't serve Jesus. That's what some of them will say. There are other people say, well, Israel, uh, it's not like they can't do any wrong. And hey, they can do wrong just like any other nation. And I'm sure that they have done some wrong and done some things that they, they shouldn't have done. Uh, but they are up against an awful lot. I know we didn't like it too much when we had Russia in Cuba. One little tiny nation to our southern area. We didn't like that at all. And we got very upset over it. Can you imagine having several nations on each of your borders, all around, and then nations behind them that all want to see you destroyed? I just can't imagine what that's like to, to live through. But all you need to do is ask God, God, what would you have us to do with this, this situation? Should we recognize Jerusalem as the capital or not? Just ask God. And God says, uh, yep, go ahead. Then you do it. Yeah, but what if this person gets mad? Well, if God says, yes, go ahead, then he's already understands certain people are going to get mad. And he's okay with that. Should we support Israel in this particular fight? You ask God, should we support Israel in this particular fight? God says, yeah, you should support Israel in this particular fight. Then you, you support them. David did this. Should I go out to battle? Should I defend this city? And God says, yeah, go ahead. And so he went out there and defended them. We can do the same thing today. Just ask God. You just have to have leaders that are willing to ask God and then do what God says to do despite who might be upset. Sometimes, you know, you get a person in power who's of a political party, one party or the other, and the party doesn't want them to make that decision, but they feel, maybe they're God-fearing, and they feel God saying, we need to go this way. They may feel the pressure from their party who says, don't do it. We have to have people in leadership that will do what God says, not what their party says. And, uh, I, I can't find any party that agrees with me all the time. So I, I don't think that'd be too hard for me to, to go against the party. I get some of them, they call me up on the phone. There's not a single party in this country that I would support. I don't send any money to any any of the uh, any of them because I don't trust what they would do with my money. They would give it to leaders that I don't necessarily agree with. So uh, I don't get any more calls from from um, any of them. I'm on the Republican list, so I guess if I'm going to get one, I get more from them. Uh, I've, they've called a few times, and I told them, says, I'm not sending you a dime. I said, you guys support people I don't agree with and I don't like, so I'm not sending you any money because if I send you money, you're going to send it to them. I'd rather just give money to candidates, whoever they might be, uh, that I, uh, I that I agree with. But once you're in power, that party, boy, I tell you what, I've I've heard it from I don't know it firsthand, but I've heard it from people. They say that party is on you, and if you want to continue on, if you want to do these things, this is what you need to do. And I know some people 
give in. Some people went in resisting that and, other, and then gave in before they got out of office. And other people went in, submitted to that, and just continued on with it. Uh, I think both of our parties, main parties in this country, are woefully lacking in their respect for God and the things of God. But they still put the, a lot of that pressure on. So what's all this mean for us? Well, beside all those prophetic things, and these are things we can watch for, and the next two chapters do have some future things for us to look for and to, to, to watch. But just as Israel continues to remain, despite all those who have been and are now against her, so also will the church, no matter who, would rise up in opposition. We can think back on the things of Israel. We can look at what God has done in the past that we have been here to see. And we know what God has done in history. We read about it in the Bible. We know how God has stood up for Israel despite all the nations that came against them. God still defended them. And God was able to defend them. And God was able to preserve them. And even after they were cast out into captivity, God brought them back. And even when they were cast out again, God brought them back. No other nation has ever been brought back once, let alone twice. This nation has been brought back twice because God did it. In the same way that God preserved them, God will preserve His church. This should testify to us of what, what God will do, who He is, and what He will stand up for for His church. He will not let His church be overrun. And these are promises that are in the New Testament. That we are the victor. But sometimes we read about these things. Well, we are the victor, but I'm looking individually on, on my part. Well, I don't feel too much like a victor. I don't feel too much like I'm overcome. No, when you go back in the Old Testament, that may be for the Jewish nation. But the same way that God defended the Jewish nation, He has promised to defend you. The same way that God was in covenant with the Jewish nation. Abraham. The same way He's in covenant with you. The same dependency that Israel had on God, we have on Him as well. And there is no nation that can stand up against us. And just as He made them like fire among combustible material, seeds or hay, or just, just like He made them like that, He will make you that way as well. No matter where it is that we take the battle, some of us take the battle as far as defending the Word of God. Some of us take the battle in going out and laying hands on people and we make it more of a priority than other people do. Some of us take to the battle and we spread the news of salvation to the people that we meet. Some of us take the battle by going after the, the school boards and representing some of the things that are going on there. Some of us take the battle into our local governments to make sure that the Word of God hands up, holds up there. Some of us take the battle into the state governments to make sure that the Word of God holds up there. And some even take the, the Word of God into the battle of the federal government. There's all kinds of places where this is going on. No matter where you are, which battle of those things that you have taken up that God has said, hey, this is where I need you to be. Understand, the battle in front of you will seem the most important of any battle in the world. Because you're in it. <laughs> it is hard for you to imagine any battle being more important than the one that you are in. Because you see its effect, you see the need, and you know how much help that you need in that particular battle. 
But God has battles on all kinds of fronts. I just named some. I'm sure that there's other ones as well. The movie that came out showed some of the battle that is going on for the lives of the, the children that are out there and the, the things that are going on in the, the drug trafficking and the child trafficking and the sex trafficking things that are going on. And there's people that are involved in that battle. And to them, that seems to be the greatest and the most important battle that there is. No matter what battle we're in, it should seem and will seem like it is the greatest and most important battle that is here. But God has given you a burden for that. God has given you an opportunity to go after that. And God has given you an anointing to go after the thing. But just understand, just because your battle is important doesn't mean any other battle isn't important. And God is just as aware of your battle as uh, the other people's and what they are facing as well. And just as He came through for Israel, He will come through for you. He will help you. He will tell you what to what to take on. No matter what battle that you're in and whatever those areas that we mentioned and maybe some other ones that I certainly have not, I've mentioned them all. Ask God. God, here's a battle coming up in this particular thing. Is this something that I should take on? And God will tell you. Yeah, take that one on. He may say, no, back off on that one. It's not that I'm not thinking that's important. That's just not the time for it. Whatever it might be. Uh, but you got to ask God. That's why David would always ask him, should I go and should I take this? I've only got 600 men. Should we go out here? Should this be one of the things that we should do? And so you ask God, whatever battle that you're in, whatever thing that you're facing, wherever you're bringing the Word of God to, is this a battle that I need to fight? Don't look for excuses for it not to be. But if God says, no, hold off, don't, don't feel like, well, I can't be God. No, there are some times that God may say, no, hold off on this one. I need you for this battle that's coming up over here. And if you're involved in that battle, you won't be ready to take this one on over here. Just listen to God. He'll help you. But let me read for you a few scriptures. I wrote them in your outline for you. And you can, just so that you would have these in case you wanted to go and get them later on. But I just want to read them here for you. Matthew 5:10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. For my sake. Yeah, you're going to see this in battles, aren't you? People are going to say all kinds of things falsely against you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're not facing anything new. People faced it before, and they made it through. God brought them through. God will bring you through too. 2 Corinthians 12.10 Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Romans 5.3 And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Romans 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. 1 Peter 3.14 But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake... You are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. 
chapter 4, verse 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the Spirit of glory and God rests upon you. On their part, He is blasphemed, but on your part, He is glorified. James 1, 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And finally, Revelations 3.11. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Hold fast to it. Don't let go. Just in the same way that the non-Jewish people responded as those that were intoxicated because intoxicated with Israel's destruction in the same way. There are people who are intoxicated with the destruction of any person who stands up for the Word of God. They don't need to know you. They don't need to know anything about you. But if you stand up for the things of the Word, if you testify that you are a servant of Jesus Christ, you say that salvation is through the name of Jesus, you will immediately get their look because they are intoxicated. They are drunk with this cup. And they will come after you with everything that they can. Don't think it's anything personal, but just understand the same way God stood up for the Jewish people and He's the same God. He hasn't changed. He's going to stand up for you. The world is looking for the destruction of the church and the destructions of the Christians in it. They are motivated by the same force. Satan's forces of darkness are behind it. Don't give in to fear. Gave you these verses. I wrote them down for you so you can, you can have them if you ever need to look at it. Whatever battle you're in, understand God is in, in it with you. And everything that you take on, keep going to God. God, is this one that I should take on? And when God says, yeah, take it on, then go after it. And just because it gets tough doesn't mean you back off. You go back to the Word and you look at all the times that people in the Word took on a battle and it was tough. And you get encouragement from them. You look at how they handled it. You say, no, look how David went. Look how Joshua went. Look how Moses went. Look how Paul, Peter, John. The list goes on. Look how they went after these battles. No, I'm going to stay here. And I'm going to do as Revelation said. I'm going to make sure I hang out to the end. I'm not going to let anybody take my crown. As a... Uh, one way you could put it, they can take your life, but they can't take your crown. Well, Father, we thank you. That just as you defended Israel, you defend us. That just as you loved Israel, you love your church. And just as you are mindful of Israel, you are mindful of your church. You know what the enemy has, plans that are against us, and your plans are greater. I thank you that you have ways to preserve us, to keep us in battle and then we do not need to be afraid thank you for it in Jesus name Amen